All right, joining me today is Michael Kennedy. Michael is the host of the Talk Python to Me and the Python Bytes podcast, as well as being the founder of Talk Python Training. And in addition to all that, he is a Python Software Foundation Fellow. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. All right, well, listen, uh, I've been getting into Python like everyone else in the world, so I wanted to have a true expert on. But before we get uh, into that, I want to start with, uh, looks like you have a love of motorcycles, and I noticed in your uh, Twitter picture, you actually have like some device on your motorcycle. Like, it looks like a, almost like a Peloton. And I was like, I, and my thought was like, did he write some Python thing for his motorcycle? So Explain to me, what am I seeing when I see on your dash of your motorcycle? It looks like you have some type of like weird looking device. What is it? Gosh, I, I would love to write some Python for my motorcycle. <laughs> now you got my mind spinning. What can I do? What can I do? I, there have to be APIs. Okay, so I have, uh, that's a, a Yamaha Tenere 700, which is a adventure motorcycle. And it's just GPS and really focused on sort of exploring off-road stuff. So I live in Oregon. We have a bunch of mountains and deserts and forests, and many of those areas have huge open trail systems that you can navigate um, for just exploring stuff. You want to go to the top of that mountain where there's no roads, you know, there might be a, a way you can ride your motorcycle out there. And so I've been really just enjoying that. Uh, I grew up racing motocross and kind of put that to the side for, you know, being more of an adult, but it's been really fun to get back into that kind of riding. So is that device basically kind of give you like a map of like the off-road uh, courses or is it just sort of just GPS just to keep you on course of like where you want to go? Yeah. Yeah. It's more of those, those maps and there's a, a lot of stuff that you wouldn't find on Google Maps or Apple Maps or Waze. They're, they're just, they say you can't go from here to there, but if you, <laughs> if you go to the right apps and pull up the right data, uh, you can, you can find your way. No, that's nice. Now I know you have a goal. You were t- telling me before the show that what's your goal to go uh, drive across Oregon, a hundred percent off-road. Is that the, uh, that's, that's my goal. It's turns out it's a lot longer when <laughs> you go curvy, curvy, curvy across the little areas, you know, instead of going in a straight line on uh, interstate. So I don't think I'll be able to make the whole way. That's a, a nine day trip, one direction. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm planning on doing, you know, two or three days at least just across the mountains, across the desert. Uh, back road. There's something called the BDR, Backcountry Discovery Routes, which there's sort of this this organization that plans it out. So it's, it's very neat. All right. Well, it looks it looks uh, it looks exciting. I was going to say, like, I, I don't know my uh, Oregon geography, but it's like it sounds like, or I'm mentally uh, thinking, like the first part would be very hard through the mountains, and then it would get real easy. Is that like, or is that, or, or am I totally wrong about that? It gets a lot harder that, in the plains. That completely. That's a very good uh, initial thought. Like, yeah, okay, this mountain goes up, you know, ten thousand feet. That's going to be tricky. I, I think honestly, the harder part is the the flatter part where the desert is because it's sand, like deep sand, which is harder mm-hmm. to ride than just you know mountain trails, which are somewhat tame. Like so we'll it. see. I'll I'll, let you, I'll report back when I do well, it. Well, I was going to say, more importantly, you know how it goes. we need to get the Python. I don't know. Maybe you already have it going. The Instagram account going. This will be this will be good content. Take some good pictures along the way. It sounds uh, it sounds exciting, and we wish you the best with that. Um, I think it's important that as technologists, we we get a chance to diversify, just to step away a little bit, and then clear your mind and come back. You know, burnout's an issue. And, and being stressed out and not loving what you're doing if you, you do too much of it at the computer. So this is this is my angle of that. 
No, I totally agree. Listen, I, I'm not as adventurous to drive motorcycles uh, at this point in my life. Uh, although I did it I, when I was much younger, I did. So I don't know, maybe I've, maybe I've outgrown it. Maybe I've matured. But now I just walk around outside. And I think that's like incredibly healthy, right? Just walking. It's, it's not nearly as dangerous or as exciting as <laughs> motorcycles, but just walking outside is good. So, yeah, um, for sure. well, listen, you know, as I kind of I mentioned at the top, right, you know, uh, Python is just, I just think has just exploded, you know, in the last few years. And uh, I, th- I think of you as sort of my, my expert, because I've been listening to your podcast, um, you know, I don't know, over the last few years, especially as Python's just gotten more and more exciting. So I thought maybe we just kind of like start with your background. I, I mean, other than just like seeing the future and knowing that Python would be a huge success, uh, how did you uh, get into Python and kind of what led you to start some of these podcasts? Yeah, I feel like I caught the tiger by the tail a little bit with my oh, technology choices. You, you, as many, you crushed as, it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. As many people did, you know, obviously there's many, many people doing powerful stuff with Python. But when I got into it, it was it was very interesting, and it was one of the well known languages. But it certainly wasn't where it is today. And you know, I I got into Python because I was just looking to diversify my background I, i've done a lot of stuff in i was doing c plus plus and then i did a lot of c sharp and dot net and it increasingly occurred to me that being just tied to one one ecosystem that's entirely dependent on a single commercial entity microsoft in this case yeah mm-hmm. even even though they do treat developers pretty well is maybe not the best long-term career choice <laughs> you know in case they make <laughs> decisions or just things out of their control uh change the ecosystem that you're kind of tied to right and so i started to look around it's like 2009 2000 maybe yeah probably around 2009 2010 started to look around and thought, well this python thing a lot of people are talking about it. it's pretty interesting i went to went to this kind of MVP summit type of thing for MongoDB actually. And there's tons of smart people there. And many of the, the folks I really respected, they'd be like, hey, check this out. They'd be pulling up their computer and playing or something. Like, what are you doing? Oh, we're, we're doing this thing with Python here. And like, oh, that's interesting. They're doing Python. And, and he, he's doing Python and she's doing Python too. Okay. Maybe Python is something I should, you know, go check out. And I, I did. And I just... It took a little bit of getting used to a new technology, but it was fantastic. So that was that was why I got interested in it and got into it. And yeah, I just kind of took off from there. So, and you're kind of like, because I think it's about the right, we're looking at a graph here of the growth and just to kind of, and I'll make this some uh, chapter art for people. But basically you go back to 2009 and Python sort of like kind of just like, I don't know, pretty low down in the mix with like a bunch of different uh, programming languages. And then you just see like if Python were a stock, it just sort of like shoots up out of nowhere, <laughs> sort of like, you know, passing. Like, yeah. I, I don't know if even if it's fair to say these are like, um, I don't know, competitors, but like Ruby, PHP, Perl, all, I mean, it just, it's just amazing. It just sort of leaves them all in the dust. Um, yeah, it used to be, it used to be down in that, that realm of, you know, it's kind of tied with Ruby. It's kind of tied with Perl. And then, it just, as you said, it just took off, and now it's like five, six times as relevant. Where many of those are trending, trending down. You're talking about the Stack Overflow trends, yeah, graph, right? Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh huh. Well, what do you think? Like around, you know, because I think it's kind of interesting. Just to, you know, because I was. This is sort of like going way back in time, even you know, maybe kind of like you know, around the 2000s, 2005. I would have said. 
if someone, and I think this is totally wrong now, like, but if someone had said, hey, you know, what is Python? I would be like, oh, yeah, it's like this scripting language thing that some people yeah. use, right? And I just would have, like, kind of just glanced over it, like, sort of like, yeah, it's kind of like the scripting language. Um, but I've, in retrospect, I kind of look at it like, wow, that, that seems completely, like, misguided. Like, I don't know. So I just wondered, like, one, do you, um, did you ever describe it that way as a scripting language? And then two, like, what are, like, what do you think people miss? Like, why did I make that mistake? Um, about Python that makes it maybe more than more than maybe what it appears to the outsider, if you will. There's a couple of thoughts I have on, on why that's the case. One, I think Python is a good scripting language. And so it's presented to many people, especially kind of in the cloud space and the sort of DevOpsy side of things. It's presented in, oh, I could write Bash scripts or I could write Python, you know, kind of yep. accomplish things, right? And so I think that that's probably one of the reasons Another reason is with Python, you can have a very, very partial understanding of what it even is and still be pretty effective, right? So a lot of times, you know, maybe you're like a biologist and you're like, I, I, I heard if I use this library, I can show a cool graph of this data that I have in this, this format over here. And if I just write these four lines or six lines of code just in a file and run it like as a script look, I get this awesome graph showing up and look how cool this is, right? So people used it in that way. And if that was your exposure, it's easy to think, well, okay, this is just a, a scripting language that, that people use that kind of kind of stuff for. But then around the same time, people are building Instagram <laughs> with it. <laughs> and YouTube is written in, I think it still runs on Python. Oh, really? Um, okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... There's a pretty interesting story told by some of the people at Google. I can find find the book. It was by Mike Driscoll. He wrote this interesting book about a bunch of history of Python stuff. The how Google Video, Google before it had YouTube, used to have a competitor to YouTube called Google Video that was written in C plus mm-hmm. plus, and yep. YouTube was a little upstart in in Python, and they were just adding features faster and faster and faster than the the C plus plus crew over at Google could. So eventually, Google solved it by buying them, right? But it was a interesting contrast of like, well, we're going to take this high end engineering language and build this this proper thing versus we'll take this kind of uh, more loose, flexible, but developer fast, not necessarily execution fast language, and and build something like YouTube. So. Yeah, I think it depends a little bit on your exposure. Also, you know, when you think about applications, a lot of times it's like I'm going to compile an application and hand you a binary. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Python, that's still today a little bit of a challenge. So I can see that as a roadblock as well. It's like, oh, you don't compile and get a thing you hand out. You just run the files, right? And so I think that might be where a lot of that perception comes from. But it, it's certainly the whole, whole spectrum of things out there. Yeah, you know, no, I think you hit on some interesting things there. It's like, because I kind of go back in time and I think the part you were saying there about the Google thing is like really instructive because I think that carries over. There's sort of like, maybe you kind of got exposed to technology, but then as you were, I'm gonna, like, this is going back in time. I was sort of like, well, if you wanted to be like a quote unquote, like professional developer, you needed mm-hmm. to learn a language that was quote unquote, like hard, right? And it was like C, C++, Java. And I think there was this sort of mindset of like, these are um, strong, for the most part, strongly typed languages that you mm-hmm. compile. 
that, um, you know, if you will, like people like Google and like the, the really PhD kind of like computer science people are doing. So I think that was sort of like, I'd go all the way back to like 2000, you know, like kind of the explosion of Java and all that was sort of like, well, that's what it meant. Like if you were getting to be a serious developer, it seemed to like, you know, attract those kinds of people. Whereas I think maybe the simplicity of Python sort of, sort of, if you will, um, kind of mass, like, uh, how how much it could do, right? And I think now we've almost come full yeah. circle, right? Now I look at it like everyone's, you know, building Python and we're going to talk about machine learning and some of the data analysis. And it's almost like, like why, like I almost feel like <laughs> the conversation's inverted. It's like, why are you wasting your time with this C++? Yeah. What are you crazy? Yeah. Like, I mean, no one, and even to the point, like no one can write accurate C++ without memory leaks. Like you're just, um, you know, and so that's kind of been like, I don't know, I think it's super interesting. It's almost like generational trends, like what is old, what is new, and like kind of just reevaluating all these assumptions mm-hmm. uh, that went into it. Yeah, the 2000s, you had the, are you a real software engineer or a professional versus just someone who tinkers, tinkers with scripts, right? And, you know, that was often C++ or Java, all right? And, you know, yeah. How no, serious totally, are you, right? Are totally you using well. Eclipse or what? Come on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I also think, you know, I thought maybe you, you could touch on this as well. I think um, there is something about, and I've heard, you know, uh, some people on your show and others that just talk about, like, the... Um, I'll call it like an elegance or an an easy way to express yourself. Like that's what I think you hear a lot about people. Um, And I wanted you to comment like on like writing Pythonic code, right? Writing code Mm -hmm. that's just very like, um, if you will, easy to express what you want to do. So I don't know, like what is, what's your thoughts on like, maybe you should just for the audience here, like define like Pythonic if you can. I don't know. I feel Mm -hmm. like it's more like a mood than it is a a thing. And then two, and then part (laughs) of that is sort of like, uh, what is it about Pythonic code that sort of like attracts people to it? Yeah, it's like defining a Zen state or something, right? Like, can you really describe it? No. So Pythonic code, this is something when I got into Python is one of the first questions I had. Because I saw it all over, like, are you writing Pythonic code or are you are you writing non-Pythonic code? And clearly that's bad. You definitely want to write Pythonic code. As, <laughs> yeah, as you, you know that from the immediately. <laughs> you're like, I want to be on that team. You know, how do I get on that team? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but I don't know the rules. Is it a secret yeah. society? How do I get in, right? <clears throat> so... Um, with with Pythonic code, um, there's idioms and styles in the Python programming language, and I, I kind of touched on this with this example of like why scripts, right? You can you can be effective with a partial understanding of Python, and there are ways in which you write code and do things that work with the way that Python expects you to write code, and you can do things that work against you in the way that you would write Python, Python code, Pythonic code, code for the Python runtime. So maybe the best example is just something super simple like a loop, right? In Java, C++, and C, and C Sharp, you name all, all these languages, you have your standard loop is a for loop, right? You say, uh, you create a variable, you do some tests, you increment it. In Python, there is no such loop like that it doesn't even exist, right? There's ways to kind of make it make it work if you piece together a couple of lines, but there's other ways to do it. You got a collection, you just say for thing in collection, or you might not even write a loop. You might use something like pandas where you do vectorized processing. Instead of looping over a million lines, you say, I want to apply this operation to all million lines. Go do that, right? And those ways work more with 
the way the, the libraries and runtimes expect you to work, right? So a p- Pythonic code would be kinds that like takes advantage of that. And non-Pythonic code would be, well, I copied this from C and crappy Python language doesn't have a for loop with numbers. So I, I did this code to make it work, right? And it kind of looks like somebody took C code and made it just enough changes to make it run or Java code <laughs> and made just enough changes to make it run, but not understanding there's actually a completely different style of approaching this problem that is super easy, higher performance, all those things, right? So there's just a whole spectrum of these ideas in Python that you could either embrace them or kind of pretend they're not there and program around them. And that the side that embraces them, that that's Pythonic code and Pythonic programming. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great example. And I do think, I guess, what list comprehension seemed to be sort of like the entry, the gateway yep. to Pythonic code. It's like once you yes. sort of like, oh, I just, uh, and I do think there is some magic. Maybe this is sort of like the, I don't know, as the kids say, the vibe check. It's like once you sort of like get into list comprehension, you're like, yeah, like this is the way to do it. Like why aren't other mm-hmm. languages like that where you can basically just in one line, it's like, yeah, do this for all the things in this list, right? That's what I want. And so, um, so that's, that makes a lot of sense. Now, the first place I wanted to kind of dive in a little bit on was sort of uh, data analysis, right? And I think, you know, as mm-hmm. someone that has uh, personally uh, built a lot of bad Excel workbooks that's been subjected to using <laughs> a lot of Excel, bad Excel, um, this was sort of like been my more recent gateway into it. Like people told me all the time, right? It was like, oh, you know, you can do all this like Juniper notebooks and you can do all this mm-hmm. stuff. And I honestly, for years, ignored them. I just, I just was like, I'm busy. I don't have time, right? It's one of those classic, like, <laughs> I don't have time to, like, learn how to do something faster. But I finally... Like programming I think, um, in a browser, that's kind of weird. Like, is that real? Come on. <laughs> yeah, so maybe we'll start with, like, I mean, like, what is a, a Juniper notebook? And, like, what's the story? Like, do you know, do you know, where do these things come from? So they are inspired from early days of computer programming. Uh, Donald Knuth talked about this concept of literate programming, where kind of the the program itself describes its intent and what it's supposed to be doing. It's a more a more focused, maybe more purposeful version of you should write code comments. You know, that that kind of thing, right? right. Which is is true also can lead you down bad paths, but that's a whole different discussion. But so your your program should describe itself and you can sort of accomplish that a little bit with um with comments, but if you had a way where you could almost tell stories inside of your code, that would be nice. Well, who has to tell stories around maybe some code and a gosh, if you could have a picture, there's no way to do pictures other than those awesome ASCII art, <laughs> you know, little <laughs> uh, treats that people put into their program. But in general, there's no way to have pictures, for example, right? Graphs mm-hmm. or tables in reasonable ways even in comments. And so that that came out of academics and the data science side of things. It's like, well, how do we how do we have a paper instead of just taking a copy of our code and sticking it in there? What if our paper could, you know, our academic paper, our research paper, if it could execute and be rerun and be tested, right? It sort of comes from the desire to explain your data and have it right next to that explanation or right next to the picture. And, and saved and as well as repeatable science, right? There's, it used to be people would say, well, I ran this code and then I got this graph or I got, <laughs> you know, the, right. the confidence is 0.96. So that obviously that's good. 
well, what does ran that code mean, right? That means they had some computer, they had some, ins, you know, some version of a, a compiler or maybe it's MATLAB, who knows, whatever it is. But they had some version installed on something with some level of patches and some libraries they got off the internet and they, those also have their own version and, and variations, right? So how do I, as a, another researcher say like, well, this is an important study. How do I also get nine, six or nine, seven if I run it? Like they, it's to go back and piece that together. Or even if it's just you as a scientist, you want to, you know, do a follow-up study. You're like, I can't get this to run. Like, what was I doing? Right. All, all that's tricky. And so no Jupyter notebooks bring this all closer together. Obviously there's still, it's not perfectly repeatable, right? It doesn't bundle an operating system with it and a CPU <laughs> hardware, but it's, it's much closer than I took some code and I ran it somewhere and I grabbed the output and dropped it into a research paper. Yeah. You hit on a, a bunch of good things there. And I, I'll just add to it. I think when you add kind of Docker to the equation, right? Where you sort of say, okay, I'm going to run, um, cause there, you can basically get this off, you know, and any of them pull down, like, here's the standard Docker image I'm going to use for Juniper notebooks. And you just like document that. And then you say, here's the data. This is the data, you know, mount it with your drive. Um, cause then it really does become, I mean, about as repeatable as possible, right? It's basically you're running yep. the exact same version of Python using the same tools. And as long as you sort of like can access to the same data, you get the same results. And I think, the thing I've really noticed, and I guess this is more or less academia, <laughs> this is more, I don't know, corporate America, let's call it, was um, in Excel, what often happens is like, you know, you get some like weird data in some weird format, right? And then mm-hmm. in Excel, especially when you get around people that really know Excel, there's just like all this crazy mag- black magic you can do to like yeah. change the columns. But like it's if you don't either know what you're doing or someone else did it, like you have no idea. Like you're like, I don't even know how this data got in this format. And what I find Mm -hmm. is that like, Oh, when people put it in a Python or Juniper notebook, rather like the first part is like, I'm not breaking any ground here. It's always like, like import Mm -hmm. the raw data. Then it's like, do all of these transformations for, for me, but then you can just go see what they're doing. Right. You can actually just go read. This is where Excel really breaks down. It's like, you know, it's just like, Oh, this is just, back to the things we're talking about. So, oh, this is a pretty simple list comprehension with some string substitutions. It's very easy to understand. And then they get, you know, get it in the format they want. Um, and then they start doing analysis. So it's just very, you know, easy. A leads to B, B leads to C. And you're like, you're like, of course, Brandon, you're just stating the most obvious things. But I'm like, yeah, but like in Excel, like this is just, I don't know, man. It it's, it really it's becomes difficult, I think, um, when you're in the Excel world. So I don't know. That's, I guess, my pitch to everyone is like, yeah. um, I don't know why it took me so long to like actually open up a Jupyter. Maybe the word Jupyter, I don't know. I just felt like it's just going to be too complicated or something. Yeah, I was like, Jupiter. It's like... It's like a planet. I don't know. <laughs> I'm I not did. an astronomer. This isn't for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was kind of that thing. So, uh, so it's 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 pretty cool. So I don't know. I thought we, and then I guess you know, I wanted you to maybe talk on the the next step here. Sort of like, okay, so we get some data in. We've convinced that we're using a Juniper notebook. The next big discovery for someone new, I think, is is probably pandas. Like, I don't know. So maybe you probably. want to give us a, a quick uh, like, what is uh again maybe we need maybe this is my whole comment is like maybe we need to just work on these names like of jupiter pandas yeah. nobody knows what we're talking about but but uh give us an overview of what pandas yeah. is and like why someone in excel would be interested in, in learning about it i i remember i think we've gotten past this as a industry mostly but i remember sort of ceos and decision makers at, at corporate environments like they 
they would hear some of these names, you know, like you think of testing, like there was like cucumber was one of the <laughs> testing frameworks. Like we're going to use cucumber. Like, you know, we're, a, we're a bank. We don't use cucumber. I don't know if you've been working here very long, but <laughs> that's right. What are you a chef? Yeah. What are you making a salad? Yeah, we're exactly. here to talk about real yeah. business. By the way, we're going to use chef for our DevOps as well. So are you <laughs> serious? Right. Was that a joke or no? <laughs> yeah. So I think people are kind of getting used to this, but we may be a little too cutesy with the name. Um, let me say something about Excel really quick and then as motivation, then we'll talk about the libraries. So you talked about how it's hard to see what's going on with Excel. Like, I think across almost all programming languages, one of the universal no-nos that sometimes you've got to use, but extremely rarely is this a good idea are go-to statements. Remember in like yeah. basic of the early days, of like course. you would write, you know, print, hello, my name you know, 20 go to 10 sort of thing and yep. it would loop around, right? Like, but you don't see that because go-tos are very difficult to understand and they're generally a bad idea. So think about this though. Excel is like a go-to statement where you can't actually see, even read the go-to lines, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. it's sum this up and then go to over here to this cell and then go over to that cell and take those and put them like it's, yeah. it's crazy how it goes together like that, right? And so the ability to look at a, what may be a beautiful and well-done notebook, or sorry, uh, wor worksheet, and, and see that, it's even as somebody who created it, you can't usually see the flow, right? You can't see this data goes here and then that data goes over there. If you just Google major Excel blunders or errors, <laughs> you'll end up with amazing <laughs> stories. <laughs> Um, there, like, for example, the genetic society, just organization of scientists around the world. I don't remember what they're called. Not a, not a biologist, but, um, <laughs> they actually ended up changing the name of a gene because of Excel. So the, because when you would type in the name of the gene, I don't remember what it was, but it was like MAR, some, I think it was like March, MAR27. Or whatever. Let's just say that that's it. It would parse it out as a date. Yeah. <laughs> like we can't type the name of a gene into Excel, so we can't fix Excel. So we're renaming the gene, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Because it's too horrible. We can't. We just can't go on like this, right? There's all these <laughs> kinds of challenges. Um, and so moving to a programming language solves those problems, but it introduces new problems. Like if moving to the programming language was we're moving to C++, it's like, but I'm not a programmer. Yeah. I'm a biologist or I'm an economist. I can't do void star star pointers. Like, what are you insane? Like, <laughs> and so Python simplicity in this part that's being productive with a very partial understanding of it comes back into play here. We're like, okay, it's, it is a programming language, but it's really simple. If I want to use it in a simplistic way, it has tabular data structures, which gets us back to things like NumPy and pandas. NumPy is a way to do um, like linear algebra type of calculations in Python, right? So long vectors of numbers or, um, you know, tables of numbers, and you can do things like multiply them, add them, get statistics on them. And then pandas, pandas is a higher order library that 
conceptually is really similar to Excel, I think. It comes out of finance. Um, and if you want, you can just say, read up the CSV file and it'll parse it in. I think it'll try to even turn the things into numbers if possible. If not, you can tell it, read these. This column is numbers and it'll do the, the parsing to convert it to numbers. There's integration with Excel. There's ways to like read a pandas data frame uh, loaded up from Excel an Excel worksheet or to write to it and so on. So there's a lot of kind of back and forth there, which I think is why it's pretty popular. But just to give you a sense of like, at this point, they're kind of on par, but no go-to statement. So that's all good. <laughs> but there's then at that moment, the whole world opens up to you, right? For example, if you wanted to get like, let's suppose that there's some web page and on that web page, it's run by the U.S. government, let's say. And about two-thirds of the way down, there's a table. And it says, here is the table of the data of the U.S. employment by state year over year for the last five years. And that table updates monthly or, or yearly or whatever. And you would like, your, you would like that table in your, your code, right? In Excel, you go, you find the table, you copy it, you paste it. Hopefully you're not off by one, right? Because then you've got those go-tos and oh my gosh, here, um, here we go. Right. I thought I was calculating with California. I'm calculating oh, really? with Alabama. <laughs> yeah, or Alaska. Exactly. Whoops. <laughs> not the same. The population of Alaska just blew up. What just happened? What's going on? <laughs> exactly. So with pandas, for example, you can just say, go give it the URL and say, I would like this data frame to be made up of the second table you find on this page. Boom. And it just goes to the web page. It downloads it. It parses the HTML. It finds the table and it parses that table with its headers into your data frame. And you can rerun that whenever you want to repeatably. Right. And that's yep. kind of the difference. Yeah. I think, well, I think you have that. And then I just think like, once you get it in a pandas uh, data frame, it's like, you can do anything. You can filter, yeah. filter, you can sort, you can, you know, create all these different summarizations. And I just, it's sort of like, I kind of think of it like this sort of like every uh, one line of pandas is almost becomes like a separate worksheet in Excel, yeah. right? It's like, you know what I want to <laughs> yeah. see? I want to see it all filtered for this date in this region, right? And I want to see it. And you sort of can just sit there and I think this is where this idea of like, even if you're not an a academic, because I think so many of us in like, I don't know, just the business, you know, uh, enterprise, large enterprises, it's like you're looking at Excel data, but you're just trying to learn about stuff, like what your products are doing, what your users are yeah. doing, what people are ordering, whatever, right? And it's sort of like, I just feel like, um, and that, and kind of borrowing from academics, it's sort of like, you just kind of just, oh, let me just make another cell in my... Uh, in my notebook. Right. And I'll just do some analysis here, which is like almost like another frame, but it, and, and then uh -huh. it, as you kind of just keep going down you're like, Oh, like I filtered this a bunch of different ways. And then, you know, if you will, your scientific discovery just may be like, Oh, and it turns out everyone's ordering blue jeans or something like that. So maybe it's yeah. not going to be an academic paper, but uh, now you have all this information. And then if you're good enough to like, you know, share it up on uh, GitHub or something inside your organization, it's like everyone can then just see it going forward. Cause what normally happens, uh, and this is where I think, you know, uh, you can kind of break with the, the traditional corporate world is like people then email the spreadsheet to other people. And it's just like yeah. magic. It's like you send out magic 
that maybe you won't even be able to recreate over uh, later on. And all of this is sort of like a little, a little work in uh, 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 Jupyter Notebooks. You know, you've just saved yourself. Like, you know, this is back to what I was joking before. I, I didn't have time to like learn how to save save time. It's like once you've done this, you're like, oh, this is the only way I should do all my analysis going forward. Go ahead. I know you want right. to say something. Well, um, just going to add that now you can publish these maybe even interactively to the web, right? Yeah. So instead of emailing a notebook, you could publish it to, if you're in this corporate environment, like you say, publish it to an internal Jupyter server or give some kind of just HTML view of that thing that is updating, right? So the sharing of it is is pretty interesting as well. And then I think the f- one of the really important aspects to think when you're comparing it against to working with something like Excel is you can see these analogies like, okay, I see this and do that. Right. I I do a pandas data frame. That's a worksheet. Okay. I got that. But then you've got all of the whole Python packaging ecosystem. Not all of it is relevant or applies at the point, but there's almost half a million different libraries where you just go, Grab that Lego block, clunk clunk it in here, right? You open up computer vision, you open up machine learning, you open up all sorts of predictive analytics libraries and and all of these things that, you know, Excel can't go anywhere near, right? Or, Or tools like it, right? And so you have these layers that just keep adding on and building, right? Like I have a programming language that's that's clear, so I don't have this go to um, I have the notebook so I can kind of see my data and my code together. And then I can bring in AstroPy and, you know, make predictions or, uh, you know, you name your area. There's libraries for it. Yeah. And I think you're kind of getting, and I think um, to kind of get into the machine learning, we'll, we'll jump in that in a second. And I think, you know, as you talk about publishing it, I think it's almost becomes like the gateway or the, if you will, the quote viral way to learn it. It's like if someone sends you a notebook, right. And you can start to learn it back to it. Even if you have the most basic understanding of programming, it's sort of like it does. It starts to open up your mind because you can kind of see what they're mm-hmm. doing. And then you're sort of like, if you will, it's like uh, teaching children something, you know, or something like they're learning without learning. You're like, oh, how did that work? How did that work? And then before you know it, you get familiar with pandas. And then you're like, um, and this takes us into kind of the AI world. It's like the best way to learn at this point. I, I've done this so many times. Is like just open up chat GPT and just oh like literally, I just feel like you can ask chat GPT to do anything in Python and it it will give you code, right? You'd be like, and I do this all the time. Like, you know, uh, you know, uh, for this data, you know, write the Python code that does X, Y, Z. Right. And it's just incredible. Like it comes back, you cut and paste it. You, and then you learn what it does and then maybe it's mistakes and things like that. So, so maybe that kind of takes us into like, what is, um, and I think this is maybe, and I'd love to get your take on this is sort of like, this seems to have been driven the, the most interest in Python recently is kind of the explosion of machine learning and AI. So what, why do you think Python sort of like, if you will, grabbed the mind and has become the preferred way to do machine learning? Like what happened there? Well, I start to think of the growth of Python and coming in kind of in waves. Okay. So there's a lot of interest in, in different programming languages and, and different things. Like for example, Ruby on Rails was really popular for a while. And people, everyone who wanted to do web stuff, they came over to that and they're like, ah, oh, but it's Ruby. Many of them are like, I don't really want to learn that, actually. I'll, I'll go back and do something else. <laughs> Python is a little bit different. And I kind of think of Python a bit as like a black hole in terms of it 
not in a negative way, but it just has this gravity that once you kind of get into it, many people get stuck. You might have gotten the accretion uh, disc and got shot out, but mostly you're like, you're in it once you start. And so why is that? So many people come in these waves because they see like, all right, with five lines of code that doesn't have semicolons or many symbols, I can do something amazing, right? I can, I could do something like we're talking about uh, with pandas or whatever, download, you know, download a bunch of stuff off the internet and save it to a file or using requests. What happens with, like, I think a lot of other technologies is either they have a barrier that's really hard, like C++ or Java, and you're like, yeah, that looks like a lot of work. I'm not learning that. <laughs> or if they are simple, like Python, you quickly outgrow them. You're like, oh, that was awesome to get started with, but now I got to do something real, right? Yeah. I got to... Mm-hmm. This is not appropriate, you know, probably the biggest example of this is Visual Basic Mix, the, the Visual Basic stuff from Microsoft. It was really cool to put together UIs, but it, you kind of had to like, okay, we prototyped in this and now we take it yeah. to the grownups, and the, right? And the, the real engineers and they do their thing. Python is interesting in that it, it allows the simplistic beginning, but it has kind of this high end, as many of the high end computer science ideas and structures in there so you don't outgrow it very often you might outgrow it for certain situations or it might be inappropriate for others but for the most part when it attracts a person that person can just keep growing as a developer or as a scientist or as a devops person whatever and they don't have to leave python they're like oh you know what there's this there's cool library that I found on PyPI that actually automates Linux boxes. And I've just brought that in. Oh, and now now we can talk to the cloud uh, APIs as well with just, I just install the AWS or Bodo library. Just, now I'm doing this over on S3. And you just keep layering it on and it just keeps growing, right? And so instead of you kind of come in a wave and you're like, I, I was there for a while then I left because I had to go to something real. Like, when these waves come, they just stick, right? And they, they generally stay, not 100%, but way more than a lot of technologies. That's how I think of Python growth. So there's this wave of AI folks coming now, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, and they're coming because for, for many of the same reasons that I think the scientists came. Um, in AI, things change quickly. It's, yes, computer compute speed is important, but... Um, the rate at which libraries are getting developed, the rate at which you can evolve your experimentation and just just the rate at which you create code effectively is very fast in Python, right? Back to that YouTube versus Google video story. Um, So I think that brought a lot of people in. And also at this point, there's just so many data science libraries that you can just grab them kind of like a Lego box and go click, click, click. I'm already like 80% up to the top of this hill. Now what do I need to do to, you know, finish off my idea? Yeah, no, that all makes sense. That's a, that's a really good explanation. I mean, I would even go further to say, it's like, I think um, it's, it's almost like people want to stay, right? I think they've gotten comfortable Mm. with Python and instead of being Mm. like, Oh, I now they're, they're almost like, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure Python can do this thing that I wanted to do. Whether that means I have to write a new library or I've got to write some mm-hmm. new bindings or I've got to like bring it over. Cause I think there's just this pull, like you said, this gravitational force of like, I want to stay there. So we could probably do like three hours just on machine learning, but I thought like, let's just like hit on, <laughs> you know, maybe give people 
you know, some uh, overview of, of things that you can do with maybe like PyTorch or TensorFlow, just mm-hmm. to kind of like, if you will, whet their appetite, because I think this is sort of um, where the, all the exciting things are happening. So what should we know? We'll just start with PyTorch. What should people know about that? So PyTorch came out of Facebook Meta, right? Both of these libraries came out of like a, you know, big tech sort of uh, places, research groups and so on. But is now, and I think it's under the Apache or Linux Foundation, one of the two. It's, it's moved on to be its own Sometimes, sort of standalone. Yeah. Under proper governance, or, or, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. It's not like, oh, I'm just using Facebook libraries. Yep. So PyTorch lets you do a bunch of things. Um, you can do, obviously, simple predictions. You can work with uh, transformers. You can do what's called model ensembling, which is pretty interesting, taking... Um, multiple machine learning models and using them as a group to come up with an answer for some problem. You can use them, uh, you could do reinforcement learning. You know, training machine learning models is extremely expensive. I can't even imagine what the amount of compute that had to be done to train a GPT and similar models. Um, There was some article or, or research done that said for a single training run of one of these models, I don't know if it was ChatGPT or just like one of the larger models, it could use as much energy and generate as much CO2 as driving a car for a year just to train up the model, right? So on one hand, we don't want to spend that much energy if we don't have to. But on the other, if if you're paying the compute bill for that, the cloud computing bill, you also don't want to spend the money directly, right? And so reinforcement learning is, is really cool because you can say we have this one model and we want to like transfer um, uh, some of that over, which is cool. So um, that's TensorFlow. And then, um, sorry, that was PyTorch. TensorFlow comes out of the Google Brain side of things and does pretty similar stuff. It's really one of its big focuses is on shipping productions level machine learning models so it you know talks a lot about machine learning ops and running your machine learning models in production that's that's pretty neat so i i don't do too much with these libraries directly so i i don't have a ton of great examples but i'll I'll tell you uh one one story that's pretty cool uh i interviewed some folks from um where there's a couple of universities, I believe they're both in the UK, and they had gone through the Kepler satellite data, which the Kepler is the one that goes and looks for exoplanets. And the old data that had already been gone through by a bunch of PhD students and stuff, and they said, okay, it looks like over time this this thing is, is dimming this star, so maybe that's a, a transit of an exoplanet. And they turned the machine learning models onto those images and they found 50 exoplanets that a bunch of students had missed because they just couldn't do it but the machine learning models were like yep exoplanet 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 there you go so um, really really cool yeah Yeah, really cool things people are um, looking at mammograms and helping you know, predict maybe better than a radiologist, whether a woman has breast cancer. Yeah, that's right? the whole Watson and IBM has been trying to do that as well. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there was some kind of, it was, I think it was called an XPRIZE yep. competition where some, you know, they did a bunch of stuff around that. So some of the more um, recent things that are pretty interesting are 
that are happening in Python around AI is closer to what we started this conversation with, with ChatGPT and friends. Have you heard of Auto GPT? I think that's what it is. Auto. Yeah, this GPT? is where like you yeah. can basically give it a task and just set it loose to like go go do <laughs> exactly. things, you know, until like world domination kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. So this is a Python library that you it uses GPT four, um, but instead of just starting to ask it questions, right? Like, hey, Chat GPT, I I want to. Um, I want to cook something with asparagus tonight. What can I make, right? You could say, um, I want an award-winning menu that is out of stuff that's in my garden, and I would like it to be inspired by these people, and I want want you to have it delivered to my house, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And so it'll go figure out, okay, what's in your garden? I've got to give it somehow to give that information. And it'll go through different steps and kind of, feed the answer back into the next step. So first thing is, uh, I guess maybe a better example that's concrete that people can relate to is the, the one they have on their page. They've got a little video you can watch. It says, I want you to go use Google to uh, learn about yourself and describe what you are and what you do to me. And so it would go, um, go to Google, do a search. It found the GitHub repository, it, like studied the GitHub repository, found the tutorials, it like went through the tutorials, and then it came back with a report on what AutoGPT is. And so it's like the sequence of events, right? I want you to go find this on the web, and if you find it, you know, buy it or whatever, right? Yeah, no, I think the the other one I've seen was um, like someone started like a web business. It was like sell, like, you know, uh, started, they gave it like a hundred dollars. It's like start a web business for a hundred dollars. And then like, it ended up like coming up, like building a website (laughs) and like creating an online shop for like some item or something along those lines as well. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. So yeah, I mean, I think there's a ton of tutorials out there and I think, I don't know, you know, this is like an area where I'm really shouldn't say anything, but I'll say it. It feels like people are saying like PyTorch is sort of like one over. That's that's like the winning yeah. way to go yeah. that like TensorFlows, don't tell anyone at Google, TensorFlow is like the old way. PyTorch is the is the right way. So I don't know, maybe that's um, true, maybe I, that I isn't. He- I hear a lot about uh, PyTorch as well these days. But more and importantly, hear- I think they all, they're all going to be based on Python. And this is sort of like kind of leads me to kind of maybe the last major topic before we finish up here was sort of like, you know, if anything is successful enough, eventually, uh, if you will, the, the true computer science people show up. And I guess the long running complaint about Python, if there is one, would be it's, it can be slow, right? That's what people mm-hmm. talk about. And, um, and so I kind of stumbled on this the other day is that, you know, now there's a whole group that because Python's so successful is they, they want to bring, uh, if you will, the performance of like C, C++ to Python. And so I don't know, have you been following, uh, I guess, this new company Mojo and their attempts to uh, kind of, if you will, uh, build a, a new, not a new, I guess, a, a superset of the Python yeah. um, language to, to bring high performance? Kind of the C++, what yeah. C++ is to C. A little yeah, bit, I guess. I don't, I don't know. How do, you, yeah. how do you view it? Is that how you would describe it? I think that's, well, I think that's sort of how I would describe it. Um, yeah, I think I probably would describe it that way, given what I know. So Mojo is an interesting project. It, um, it, it has some really remarkable speed performance boosts over standard Python. Okay, so there's a, a couple of things going on with Python, both that are making it fast and maybe making it slow. So <laughs> there's a, a big initiative inside the standard Python 
which is often referred to as C Python, even though you don't write C, like the internal implementation of the runtime is C. And mm-hmm. so it's called C Python as opposed to ones based on Java or JVM and so on. So in s- the founder of Python, Guido Van Rossum, and a bunch of other folks, mostly at Microsoft, but also all around, are working to make Python faster, five times faster over five releases, which is basically five years. Their last release they did, I think, sped up Python 40 to 60% faster, which for something that's been around for 30 years, to all of a sudden in, in one year make it 40 to 60% faster for standard execution, that's pretty impressive, right? Mm-hmm. So the next version is going to make it faster. The version after that is going to make it faster. So Python is left, kind of left alone, left with the default, in a sense, will be quite a bit faster than it has been. Okay. Um, and when you think about, okay, is it slow? Then I'll tell you what Mojo is. But is it is it slow? you got to think, well, slow for what, right? Um, there's the straight, I took an algorithm, like let's say I take the N body problem, the three body problem, and I, which is, you know, non-deterministic. And you, you want to simulate that in pure Python. And so I'm just going to write some loops and have some numbers and increment them with the formulas of gravity and that sort of thing. That is a really pretty slow operation, especially around numerical stuff. Python is super slow because instead of just having four bytes or eight bytes on the stack, it actually has complex objects that are individually allocated. There's pointers all over the place behind the scenes, right? So it's, it's in that sense, it probably is slow. Although you could do a lot of things that would seem instant to humans, but still, when you put it side by side with something like C, it'll get blown out of the water. That said... We talked about pandas. We talked about NumPy. There's a bunch of other things that are more Pythonic. If you did the more Pythonic way of operating with these things, and you said, well, we're going to simulate this by grabbing this library and, and doing the you know, matrix multiplications or whatever you need to do to simulate them, that almost always is written in C or in Rust. Okay, so then all of a sudden, you're back to something really, really fast. Right. Right. And so it's a lot of times when you think of is Python slow, it's like if you try to do things 100% in Python where it's highly computational, then it might turn out to be, it might turn out to be slow. But oftentimes it comes back to like, but you shouldn't do that. Right. It's like, doctor, my (laughs) arm hurts when I do this. Like, well, stop. Stop Don't do that that anymore. You know, like, let me, I'll give you one more example uh, where I think it, it sounds like it might matter, but then it, it kind of doesn't. And then we'll talk about Mojo real quick. So uh, I knew you were going to ask me this question. Mm-hmm. So I pulled up uh, the Talk Python training website where I have my courses, right? It's all written in pure Python. It's backed by MongoDB. And the requests that are coming into there, the when it hits the the server, not when it runs in Python or something, but when it actually the socket request comes in until the response goes out of the server, Mm-hmm. So a bunch of other stuff plus Python. That's like eight milliseconds, 12 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. The big pages are running at like 30, 40 milliseconds. That's, that's fast. That's fast enough. Right? That's faster right. than most websites you will find on the internet. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, those requests are coming into Nginx. They're going over to G unicorn. Then your Python code runs. And then it talks to MongoDB on another server. And like, there's just 
all of this stuff that's happening together. And it's incredibly easy to write with Python. And I mean, I don't need better than eight millisecond response time from the server. Right. right. So it's really I, I kind of your point class, is just right? for most of the stuff, right? A lot of the stuff, it's it's plenty fast, right? I mean, that's sort of like, I think it's, the, the, go ahead. So my, yeah, so my, my main point is a lot of times what what are you connecting Python to, right? Are you connecting it to a database? Are you connecting it to uh, like an API call? Are you connecting it to a block of data you sent to a C chunk? In those places, like Python, it's almost as fast as anything else because most of the work is happening elsewhere. Even if you're doing like CUDA core programming, right? You're like pushing a little data over there and then it happens outside of there. Mm -hmm. So in those regards, like Python is super fast. If you try to write it all in straight Python though, maybe not. And so Mojo is a company, they have a really interesting angle here. Um, Their angle is a new programming language for all AI developers, right? It doesn't... It doesn't say a replacement for Python. It says a replacement for Python that's focused on like AI hardware and AI models. So I don't know what to make of that, right? On one hand, the, the focus of it, I think, will actually give it a lot of traction, right? Because all the AI people are like, okay, this thing is for me. Let me pay attention to it. <laughs> it, <laughs> it runs, it will run straight Python, I think it can make just unmodified Python code quite a bit faster, but it also has higher level programming examples where it's kind of like the C++ thing, like it's a superset of Python. So it has, for example, different data structures that have different different memory models and different completely different styles of execution, right? So it has this concept of a structure, which I think are just, blocks of memory that are way more localized than allocating stuff on the stack. And for numbers, I think it treats them just as true numbers, not as these like crazy pointers to pointer type of chasing numbers around, right? Right. And so in order to adopt it fully, you've got to kind of learn the the plus plus side of this. But it's got a lot of interesting things. It uses type Hence, just like Python does in a progressive way, if you can say this thing is an integer versus it's just a variable called x, the runtime can be faster. Whereas in Python, it's just like, great, we know it's an x now. <laughs> Back to what we were doing. <laughs> we may or may not care about <laughs> that. That's mostly true. It's not entirely true. That's mostly true. Uh, it has different um, memory checking. And there's just a lot, of, a lot of interesting stuff that is added here. Yeah, and I think you you know so, a couple of things you hit on there, right? It was like one, it's like Python just getting faster, right? So I think Python itself, the C Python, getting faster, and then I, a little bit more on this, I guess, in my research was that the Mojo, the company, comes out of uh, I guess, hope I say his name right, Chris Latner, who is I don't know, maybe people know him in the, in this world around. He's sort of the uh, I think it's called what the LLVM, and he was uh, the mm-hmm. creator of Swift, which is the Apple yep. programming language. So he has a lot of experience, as sort of if you will. Um, creating new programming languages and more importantly, I guess like kind of like, if you will, the middle of the compiler, figuring out how to compile things. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, I kind of heard an interview with him. I guess his take on it was sort of like, yeah, keep all your Python. You don't have to change anything. Just do Uh all the things you're doing. Um, But when you need to write the C library, right, I think is what he's talking about. So, and he, I think his mission was sort of like, instead of writing in C, why don't you use the superset of the, 
of Mojo, mm-hmm. his language, the language they're creating. And it does sort of like, re- this is the part I think is like, what is old is new again. It kind of reintroduces static typing. Like if you put in the types and the structs, you know, which is basically uh, allocating memory beforehand. Like if you do those things, it's, I think his pitch is sort of like, you don't have to quote unquote leave Python, but you can have the performance of C. Right. Which is, I don't know, like, is that good or bad? Is it maybe it was just as good as the way it is today where it's like, yeah. it's fine to have the C programmer come in and like rewrite NumPy or something like that. I, um, I think it's good. I think that's a pretty interesting angle. There are several ways to do that in Python already. There's something called Cython, like C Python without the P, <laughs> which is actually really similar. It's really similar to what they're doing in that you you have a function or two or some part of your code and you you put a little bit extra into the language and it can become quite a bit faster. Something called, I think it's Nootka. I'm, I'm forgetting the name a little bit there, but it's a JIT compiler as well. So we have stuff like that somewhat. And you'll, you'll see it appear every now and then in performance critical areas. I think Mojo has probably got a better... It, because it takes control over the whole thing, it's got a chance to make it way faster. And the fact that it could just grab all of your code is pretty interesting. However, there's a, a couple of things that stand out to me that are, I don't know if they're problems or not, but they're, they're points of hesitation. Let me put it that way. Okay. So if I go and I say I want to use Python, I go to python.org, I download the runtime. If I want to learn about it, I go to GitHub and there's the code, right? The open source is all there, right? The conversations plus just the runtime. And I could theoretically fork it and run it. I'm not insane. I'm not going to do that, but I could, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't want to run, manage my own whole thing. <laughs> when I go to Mojo, there's, there's no GitHub repository. There's no um, necessarily like here's what our plans are from, that I see. Maybe he talked about in the podcast, but will this be a commercial product that I have to pay for to run? Will this be – and maybe that, that might be fine, but I, as a person starting to build on top of it, I would like to know what is the future roadmap for this and how is it going to evolve and live in the community, right? Is this a commercial platform that I'm buying into? Is this an open source project? From what I can tell, there's there's no there's no sharing of it. And there's not like a pricing or plans either on the site. And so I'm just not sure. Maybe maybe you know. I'll let you talk. Yeah, no, I think uh I think those questions are valid. I think, you know, from what I've heard is, you know, that they basically are trying to get it out, right? And their goal is to mm-hmm. then open source it. Uh, going forward and build a community around it. So I think it's the classic, okay. like, you know, we're trying, they're, they, they are not we, they are trying to get yeah. like their one Oh out. And, uh, and I think he's, if you followed Swift at all, it seems like it's following a, a pretty similar model, sure. sort of like that kind of came out of Apple. And, um, now there is a Swift community and open source version and, and things like that. So. We'll see, though. Like, I mean, the question I, I still have, the question I didn't see answered, I haven't seen answered, like, well, how are you going to make money, right? Because they, they did yeah. uh, take on uh, significant venture capital. And so I don't know. That question remains to be seen. But, you know, what I think is just interesting, and I think, you know, uh, one of the comments that really stuck with me from his podcast was something to the effect of, like, um, hey, people wanted to be faster. So he had done a bunch of stuff because he worked at Google with Swift, right? Swift and machine mm-hmm, learning and right. stuff like that. But his big takeaway was like, uh, no, pe- people love Python. 
right? People yeah. don't want to leave Python. So I think he, and I think, you know, you went over some of the other things that are happening, right? In the, let's just call it the quote unquote mainstream Python community or the, the normal governance, it's, it's going to get faster. So it's sort of like Python is the answer at this point. It's, it's going to get faster just because everyone wants to write Python, at least until the next great thing comes around. And mm-hmm. so whether it's uh, Mojo, which I think is an interesting take, or if it's just uh, like you mentioned before, the five, five times faster over the five releases, if we got that right, like, it's going to get a yep. lot faster just because it's the adoption is so well. So it's sort of like, I guess my main, my main whole takeaway from that is like, oh, well, Python's just going to be super fast in the future because all the smart people are working on it. And so many people want to write Python code that unless you can like displace that with some new, better, faster language, which doesn't seem to be happening. It's, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 if you will, if you relate to Python like me, maybe now's the time to start learning it. So I don't know. Is that, is that a fair summary? Yeah, of it? No, that, that sounds totally fair. And, I'm glad to hear that there are plans for them to open source it because it, it is exciting and it would be neat for this to exist, right? And there's probably even ways for it to integrate with Python code that's truly running in CPython because there's a lot of integrations there already. There's Python to Rust, Python to C, Python to Fortran integration. So you could write part of your program in Mojo and then like drop it into some, you know, if you've got a project that's, hundred thousand lines and nobody wants to touch it but this part's slow right you know yeah you could possibly just rewrite that part and plug it back in well so i think for all of us that's too, pretty exciting i yeah. like the thing i always like is like just i don't you know it's like the compiler people the compiler people like it's like its own world right so like when the compiler yeah. people just show up they're like you know what we're gonna do for everyone we're gonna make this like really fast and it's like yeah and you just sort of like don't really want to know what's happening. You're like, okay, like you're just going to make it work for me. And yeah. it's like, that's what I would like. Cause I, I'm yeah. not going to write my own compiler. I don't want to do it. So, so we'll it's follow like, them. I all. love we'll follow- sausage, but I don't, I don't need to, I, I'm just going to eat the barbecue. Yeah. It's gonna I'm just going to eat it. And I'm going to pretend like it's, it, you did everything right. So I love it. So, uh, all right. Well, listen, we're, I know we're pretty much out of time here, but let's, uh, you know, maybe we'll just kind of end here. Like, you know, you've obviously been a very successful and continue to be a very successful uh, podcaster. I always, people always ask me this question, right? You know, any advice for someone that's uh, listening to this and they may want to be thinking they want to start a podcast? What would, what advice would you give them, if anything? Sure. Well, it's a bit of a paradox. Like, it's never been easier to start a podcast, right? You yeah. spend fifty dollars on a microphone. And you're kind of done. A lot of the software that you need is is at least free or has free alternatives to publish it is nearly free. Certainly in the beginning when you, you don't have you know millions of downloads, it's incredibly easy to get it online. You could use something like Fireside or somewhere if you want to just have an end-to-end system that clicks it all together for a little bit monthly. Um, so if you're inspired, you know, it's totally doable. And it's also one of the things, at least my experience, I'd like to hear yours as well, is I started out as an absolute beginner at podcasting. Like I didn't come with a wide range of experience of interviewing people, of editing audio, of publishing, like none of that. I just showed up and said, I'm excited to do this. I'm going to figure it out as I go. And, you know, the early days of the audio didn't sound quite as good. The early days of the interviews were a little more uh, not so clear, maybe not so focused, but people still enjoyed it. And, you know, you, you learn as you go. So people, if they're inspired, they should get out there and do it. 
I think it's good advice. And I think, you know, kind of parallels this conversation, all of Python and podcasting, I think are very similar. I think it's just like the best way to learn Python is just like start, right? Like start like yeah, writing some yeah. stuff and like do it all wrong and like, uh, and then just paste your code into ChatGPT and be like, to tell it, like make it more Pythonic and it'll exactly. like, and you start learning. And I think the same thing, that's why I always tell anyone that wants a podcast, just so he said, like, hey, if you feel like, you know, you have something you want to say, like just start, just start recording, start learning how to edit. It just like, um, you know, for me, um, when you try to write for loops in Python, you'll be like, oh, eventually you'll just learn. You'll be like, oh, there's a better way to do it. But at the beginning, no one's listening. That's the other thing I always tell people at the beginning, like no one's going to really listen. Only a few people are going to listen. So you have a lot of time to get good at it. Just like, you know, you don't have to write like a full blown compiler in Python. You can write stuff like uh, parse in the CSV file and like, give me some data. Mm -hmm. And then over time you'll, you'll learn about it. So I always, you know, tell people like, just start. And it's also too, also the other thing I tell people, it's fine too. It'll be like, get in it, try it, learn it and not like it, or just decide you don't want to do it. Nothing's lost, right? Like you maybe have some audio editing skills, but like, it's fine if you're not the next, uh, this American life or whatever. Yeah. It's, uh, that's a good point. Uh, there's no rules here, you know, just try it. Go ahead. Yeah. If, if you're completely wildly successful, awesome. And you'll, you'll have gotten really pretty good at that point. And if you're not, it's like if a tree falls in the forest and I'm trying to hear it, you know, you're not going to have to be too embarrassed about it. Cause it's, it's, it didn't go anywhere. Right. Or, whatever, but do also give it time, right? It's not going to be instantly overnight. You put it out and it's something that grows kind of like in, you know, savings accounts with interest, right? <laughs> it's got to right. compound for a while before it really grows. Before you get on it. No, that's, that's good advice. Now, uh, well, let's, uh, let's promote some of your stuff. So if someone wants to uh, learn more about you or hear more of you, so we know uh, Talk Python. Uh, to me, that's uh, I've, everyone must listen, right? Very popular podcast. What else? What other things are you up to? Thank you. Yeah, talk Python to me, the podcast. If they want to hear long form interviews like this, but in reverse, where I'm asking the questions. If they want more of a news, like, hey, what's going on? What's up? What's happening this week? I co host Python Bytes, Bytes with a Y, with Brian Aachen, and that's like a weekly news show. So that's a very different take on what you might want to learn. Um, when people want to take courses, they want to learn more about Python. I have a whole, we have 240 hours of courses over at Talk Python oh, Training at oh, this wow. point. Mm -hmm. And we've got some fun ones like we have uh, from Excel um, to, pan, uh, to Pandas, basically a whole course on moving from Excel over to Pandas done uh, by Chris Moffat, who runs Practical Business Python and so on. And so really, really good stuff over there. People can check that out. We have a bunch of free courses they can take as well if they don't want to pay for it. They're not too expensive, but you know, if you just want to try it out, there's free ones to try as well. So that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, listen to the podcast. I guess mkennedy.codes. People can find Twitter, Mastodon, uh, my blogs, plus links to all these things I just talked about over there. Well, that sounds good. Well, you're like all of us now. We all have like 17 different uh, social networks, so it's good. So <laughs> here's listen. my blue. Here's my mask. Here's my here's blue my sky. No, I was, uh, oh, yes, exactly. I was, I was thinking today. It's like I don't know where everyone is, so we're we're everywhere gotcha. as well. Uh, and of course, you you can also watch on YouTube. I will say that right. You've uh, published everything on YouTube as well, so that's another. That's uh, right. Yeah. If you because uh, I I don't know I find myself like if I'm on my computer. Uh, I just find, I, you know, someone caught me the other day listening to a podcast on YouTube. I was like, yeah, well, just, it's on the computer. It's easier. I just listen to it that way. And then when I'm uh, I love YouTube. on, on yeah. the road, I'll, or on the road, I should say, when I'm just outside <laughs> walking around, of course that. <laughs> All right, Michael, uh, thanks a lot for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate being here. Thank you. 
Yeah. And then for everyone else, if this is the first time you're listening to Software Defined Talk, then welcome. You should just subscribe right now in the podcast player you're listening to. Uh, and of course, if you would like a sticker, just send your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com and I will be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And with that, we'll talk to you next time.